Could you please pronounce your name correctly for me? <laughs> so my name is Yulia Rakleite. And yeah, it's not a common name, especially the last name. I should say because in Lithuania we're quite stubborn and I should say quite, quite conservative, especially about the language and so on. So in Lithuania, when the woman gets married, traditionally she changes her last name according to the ending of the name, you can recognize if she's married or not, because normally the name, last name of the daughter finishes with Aite, Ite, and so on. And the last name of the married lady is Iene at the end. But now for at least, I don't know, 10 years or so, it became possible to change your ending of the last name with a finishing E, which can apply either for the not married lady or married one. With some last names, it sounds very weird and you recognize that you must be married to some strange last name, man or whatever. In my case, it turns to be so natural that nobody recognizes that I changed my last name. And it's always a surprise for, for some people to realize that I'm a married lady with changed last name because for me, it was very interesting case actually it was study case for me to understand how changing of your last name is changing your identity in a way you know it was a research for me yes my i my wife is czech and in the czech republic the male and female of a family have different last names so the male will be like my last name is doles so i'm doles but my wife should be dolzova with the OVA at the end, but she chose not to do that because we're a very progressive couple. So I, <laughs> I, I thought it was incredibly sexist personally coming from America to like differentiate women like that. Also the, the, in the Czech Republic, the background of the OVA originally meant, uh, owned by or property exactly. of, and uh, I thought that was kind of inappropriate personally. Like, I don't feel like I own my wife or she's my property. So. Especially, you know, when it's not the times anymore when, when people are getting married very young, when they don't have their identity and they really feel that they belong, you know, <laughs> in a way. And, and so all those, all those super romantic relationships and so on. Because, yeah, it's a problem, a problem when, you, when you have your own identity already to realize. So now we have quite a lot of double last names as well, which gives you a possibility to recognize, you know, both identities in a way, which is becoming very long and complicated. Well, in, in the arts world, your, your name is your reputation. And so like, if you change, have to, you know, because you're a woman, you change your name because of getting married or whatever reason, it, it really can hurt your general reputation because people won't recognize your name. Exactly. But it's everything. It's your career. It's based on your name. So. And, yeah. and yeah, it's, it's part of the identity, which is really strong in a way. So it was very interesting for me to see if you can adopt another identity in a way. Hmm. And yeah, it was, it was really interesting that after five years or so, I can barely remember my last, earlier last name at some point. Well, hopefully that, that worked out for you and the rest of the industry <laughs> that they all feel the same way. <laughs> yeah. Speaking of names, I actually have... A, question you work at you are the director of the of rupert now now i am it, now currently 
is it the Rupert Rupert? Like, how did that name even come about? That's a very odd name of a place. It's a name of a person to me. So I think it was chosen on purpose as well to have institution which has some connotation to character. We don't discuss about that too much. We don't play with that too much in a way. But for us, it's very interesting to think about institution as a figure, as a character in a way. And uh, the character which doesn't have really many connotations in a culture field, so to say. So, and, and it works because it's really easily recognizable. And we also, in our signatures of email and so on, we first sign like Rupert dash name, last name, and so on, which is kind of the game as well. So it's kind of interesting, you know, to, to, to work in the institution here, which, which has the name of the figure. It does, yeah. So you are currently the director and you have a background. So like one of the things I always love, your background is not directly in specifically the arts, it's more in architecture and things along this line. So like, how did you get to be this? So like, were your parents creative? Were they architects? Were like, what was your, your childhood like? And how did you come to this, this career path? It's a super complicated question, I have to say, because I never planned this as a career or kind of Nobody plans <laughs> this as a career. It's just, it could just be, sort of it could happens. be, but some people really, you know, choosing uh, some paths in a way to, to, to go to the certain point that's, you know. Well, I chose to be an artist, but now I'm a professor and a podcaster. So like you, you, you <laughs> choose part of the game. Yeah. Well, I mean, you choose a genre to be in maybe, yeah. but like, yeah. it's like knowing that everybody sort of falls into these little subtle nuanced, uh, specializations within the, the big thing that interests them. Yeah. So in my case, it's not that much related to my origins or so, because my parents are doctors and uh, I had a very difficult choice in the primary school to choose a direction because I was really interested in all the creative fields, but I didn't have a proper education on that because I grew up in the small, small village and there were no art school or something like that. But of course, I was recognized as the one who is you know, taking part in competitions and so on, but I knew that it's very local level. Okay, wait a, minute, wait a minute. In your country, what year is that sort of decision made? Because I know this is a very European thing. Hmm. You mean when the decision yeah. has to be made? Yeah, like I know that like at a certain grade, you have to sort of decide whether to go to a gym, gymnasium or, or sciences or whatever. Around ninth grade, you have to choose direction. It's, is it humanities or, or other, you know, direction? Okay. And my problem was that I was very good in math. So for me, it was tough to decide, you know, between humanities and, and mathematics in general and this logical thinking, if I can say so. And it was by accident, actually, that I got the leaflet from youth architect school or something like that. And it was for me, you know, the way to go to the capital, to Vilnius on the very young age, on every weekend to have fun and to learn, let's say, <laughs> to go to that kind of a school to learn architecture. Yeah, I went there to party. I didn't go there to learn, but it's okay. I wasn't the party animal, but on another hand, 
thing which really attracted me is what was that I was really, really not good at that. I mean, not good at all on this academical drawing or whatever things that you have to learn. For me, it was super challenging. And maybe because of that, some of the teachers really started to like me <laughs> because I was very active and so and they wanted me to enter that school. Interesting. And it happened okay. that, that they managed to do that. And it was a very interesting period of studies. And I also, I mean, I started bachelor, then very quickly I got master, and without any gap, I entered to PhD and so on. So so it was it was my path actually. And it was by accident that I turned more to the arts field because it's also a very uh, funny story, so to say, that our faculty of architecture in Gedimnas Technical University, we were very lucky that we were not studying in that technical, technical university. Our department was in the city center in the old town, rather isolated, and we had enough freedom to look around and to go around and so on. And on the same time, I think it was third or fourth grade of, of the university, on another side of the street, it was almost abandoned, like privatized cinema, which was titled Lithuania, which is super important and, you know, noble and so on, of thousand seats, which was privatized and was turning to be closed. And then now really famous artist couple, Mehmed and Gedimnas Urbana, started the protest lab there. And just by accident, because it was on another side of the street, and we were really interested in all this movement of public space notion in general, and what does it mean to have a public space, to have a right to speak, and so on. When you're studying architecture, it's quite an opposite way of thinking, but it's really striking when you're at the very young age. I started, you know, to gather there quite a lot, and I started to work with them, with the artist. And I have to say that this was, in a way, the turn for me to go to another side and to realize that a lot of ideas, themes, and, and topics could be realized in another way or discussed in another way in arts field than in architecture, because architecture is a very slow and very pragmatic process. And not so many architects have a, this luxury possibility, you know, to express themselves in a way or to discuss via their work or to make it make things loud. Well, architects generally are either answering a brief of a client or if they're doing like governmental stuff they're doing with committees and, you know, the input from both, you know, the government as well as the people and all this. Basically, they're, you know, it's pretty rare for them to be able to just do what they want because they're not funding whatever they want. Exactly. That's the biggest difference, I guess. And also... We were discussing quite a lot lately about the role of architect and the role of artist and how do they behave and so on. And one of the differences is that architects are problem solvers mm -hmm. at some point when artists are problem risers, usually. And I think that's how I quite, I feel that I'm quite different in the arts field. I would like to be a problem solver in arts field. That's why I'm not the artist. I'm director of the institution. 
we need more problem solvers in the arts field. <laughs> we, we are just like a bunch of problem makers. Like that's all we do. It's, it's <laughs> we need, we need more people to help the funding and, uh, and opportunities and all this kind of stuff. Like that's what we need help with. And I think that there is a big need of mediators usually, you know, the ones who can help simply to, to speak in another language. And I find my, my career mostly, if I can name it career, my activities mostly as in the role of translator. I was trying to translate artistic language to architectural language. Now I'm trying to translate it to bureaucratic language, to the language of applications and to all the other fields. That is such a pet peeve of mine because I'm American, but I live in the Czech Republic. And so I'm applying for European grants and residencies and things like that. And they use completely different vernacular to describe the exact same thing. Like in the United States, we would have like travel grants where we could, you know, travel from one place to another for whatever reason. Whereas in Europe, it's generally called mobility grants. Exactly. But oftentimes, even mobility, some like like they're not the same. Like I ran into one mobility grant that is a grant that's like I don't even remember what country it was, but like basically, in instead of going to travel somewhere else, it was only for travel within the country. And I'm like, I'm not sure that that that's not a travel grant just to be within the same country. It should be to go somewhere else. <laughs> it's a different logic. <laughs> but but yeah, the, but but the generally the vernacular is you know I wish there was some consistency, like you know like a, we need like a United Nations for the arts, so that like everybody's speaking the same language, because I find a lot of times whether it's grant writing or even just looking and reading the proposals for like grants or residencies. I'm not sure the the vernacular is so unique to each government or each funder or each whatever region that it's sometimes very difficult to even know if you qualify for something to even apply for. Exactly. And that's how we waste quite a lot of time actually to look for possibilities and to find out how and so on and so forth. And at some point, for example, last year we received 500 applications for 12 residencies. Very good, though. And That's very, at very some competitive. Point, yeah, it's really great and, and competitive. And, you know, we receive a lot of applications by really great artists. But at some point, I really started to think that it's super unsustainable, you know, because when you calculate how many hours people spent to make those applications, how many hours we spent to read and revise all those applications and then to interview and so on. And then it's much more losers than winners. So there should be the way actually to, to do that more in a curatorial way maybe and to find the right way. Of course, on another hand, I really believe that all the applications and all those systems that you pass by and so on, it is giving you experience. So it's not worth a struggle. I mean, it's worth a struggle always. But I think that, you know, there is better ways to waste your time. <laughs> than well, this. well, I mean, that's an interesting thing because like I love artist residencies, just period. I'll just say that, you know, like I love them. However, I've never done one, <laughs> but, but the idea of them is magnificent. Like I absolutely admire them in respect to the fact that people can pull off these things. But that, that process of application, I 100% agree that it sh there's probably some better way, you know, a curatorial way. But the problem with like 
invitation only ones or curatorial ones or things like that is that it relies on somehow being connected to these curatorial yeah. people or the or the people that would do the invitation and then it becomes more about connections and networking than it does necessarily quality of project or quality of work so that's hard i think that residencies itself has a lot to do with networking because via residency you go or you come you apply to the network because after one residency you go to another or you go to the gallery or other exhibition space and so on. So this idea of networking, yeah, it is something that really makes European Union go. I really believe so. It's highly supported. But on another hand, sometimes it's really more of the bureaucratic system and and the way for for believers than a critical tool, no? Yes, I mean, I've met many people who are sort of what I call like sort of on the circuit, like going around artist residence. I even met a couple one time that they literally do not even have a permanent residence anywhere. They just keep touring around. Nomads, so Yeah, called. very much so, yeah. I mean, and it's kind of hard because like, is is that what you're trying to create? Like, or is it just sort of a a result of what has been created kind of thing? Because in some ways, I think that that's an amazing lifestyle to be able to do that, to travel and have all those experiences. But I also feel like it's something that, like, I didn't come to Europe until I was 45 years old. So, like, I was kind of past the age that I could be a nomad. Like, if I was in Europe at 20, I so would have been on the circuit touring around, but like, but having that life and that lifestyle is very sort of age. It's maybe not age dependent, but sort of lifestyle dependent. Like, you, you know, like I couldn't do it and I'm now married and, and, and have, you know, I've been a professor and all this kind of stuff. So like, it's kind of hard for me to be like, Oh yeah, I'm just going to take off for six months. <laughs> like my wife would be a little unhappy with me for that. So. <laughs> yeah. I think that's, in a way, that's a price to pay. On another hand, it's part of the of the style, or mm. or of the period of the life, usually. So that's why I pay most of the attention, or we pay as an institution most of the attention to the young artists who are just starting their careers, not defined by the age or something, but but really at the beginning of their careers, because I think that's certainly the way to to help. Way and and to start to to develop. I know. Unfortunately, I came to this whole system late, so I wasn't able to be part of it. And now I'm too late. So, anyways, it's okay. <laughs> it's never. It's you can never answer to the question: Is it too early or too late? Because yeah, I really remember some conversations with the artists that you know by the certain age you are always treated as young artist, and then suddenly you are like already gone. Or, or some, I mean, there is no mid-career artist. Yeah. Well, it does feel like that. Yeah. The, I mean, there it's like 35 and under is now defined as like young and emerging artists. But like after you hit 35, basically you should be able to make a living or get out. <laughs> like sort of the attitude. And like, I feel like there's substantially less opportunities for me past 35 in the entire arts industry than there were pre-35 years old. <laughs> I agree. I agree. Oh. Okay, good. It's not just my perception, then. That's good. Oh, no, I think that's part of the game. 
But I didn't enter the game until after 35, so I never even got a chance to do all that. Whatever. You could try to do that in Scandinavia, where, you know, lifetime learning and, and stuff like that is, is part of the... I just did my family genealogy, and I found out that we're a very prominent uh, Finnish family, is what our, our heritage is Finnish, so that's kind of cool. So anyways... All right. One other thing, another thing I was looking on the website and I read some bios about you and all this kind of stuff. And I'm fascinated by uh, the Lithuanian space agency. Hmm. What is that exactly? <laughs> like, I, it, I, and when I read this stuff on the website, to me, it seemed more like a, a concept. So like, what is it literally? <laughs> what it is exactly is the question. Like physically, what uh, is it? Do you do you have spaceships? I'm I'm just want to know. <laughs> it's a speculative project, if I can say so. But on another hand, we were discussing about that in the team today. Should we work with our fake institution, like to go with that and and to play with that? But it's not a fake institution because we are real. And we are real as, as a bunch of people who is working hard for that project. So Lithuanian Space Agency is officially Lithuanian representation in Venice Architecture Biennial, 17th Architecture Biennial, which was postponed. It was supposed to be open last May, and it's going to happen hopefully next year. And that's the agency which deals with the gravity issues and is doing research and is doing quite many speculative projects between arts, science, and so on, and different fields of arts that are dealing with aesthetics of gravity, if I can explain it in short. So the agency is established or just, you know, founded by the artist Juliana Surbonas. And we have all the roles like curator, commissioner, and so on. And we are working with that project for Venice. And we almost published our first annual report, by the way, which is another. Congratulations. Yep. But okay, wait, take a step back. Okay, the Venice Biennale, it's not the Biennale, it's the, it's the architecture one. So architecture Biennale, still. It's Biennale. Oh, still, okay, so okay. The, the Venice, how, how does that happen? So like what some, so the somebody from the government of Lithuania said we want we have to have a an exhibition in the Venice Biennale why and don't so, we do space agents <laughs> yeah yeah so like so could you create a space agency to do that like how does that how did that get connected <laughs> yeah, and get yeah. created yeah. in the first place that's a good turn when you think about the agency to be appointed no to to, to represent no, in our case, in Lithuania, we have an open competition every time to represent the country in Venice Architecture or Arts Biennial. And every time in the selection process, we have to represent idea as well as the team. So it's 50 to 50% 50 of, the, of the goal. So in this case, Rupert is the institution which is representing, and we have Actually, in the application, the title of the of the of the project was a little bit different, but but we had the general idea of how is is it going to look like and so on. And during this very long process, because when we think about the moment when we started to think about that, while when we did the application and when the Biennale is going to be over, it's going to be almost four years in total. 
So it's a very long process during which we kind of founded institution and then we are working on that. Yeah. So in our case, it's always an open competition. Interesting. Okay. So you're investigating gravity. Could you be a little bit more specific than that? <laughs> you know, it's difficult for me to answer the question when it is mostly I'm only representing the the artist and, and the team and so on. I'm a commissioner myself. And the uh, investigator of the gravity is the artist, Juliana Sorbonas. But basically, yeah, he's the artist and researcher and so on and so forth, engineer and designer. He can behave in different ways. And yeah, I can I can speak a little bit about him if if you agree. Uh, sure, yeah. He is the guy who grew grew up in the amusement park. So his story is that he grew up in the amusement park fun. in Klaipeda. Yeah, to have some fun. And the story is that his father was against Soviet education system, so he didn't go to the kindergarten, but he had a luxury life to go to the amusement park every day no but the problem was that he got sick and so on and he didn't enjoy that and later on when he was studying design in art academy and so on he became a director of that amusement park on the same amusement park and he started to think about that critical amusement we name it like that now as a, as a design tool, you know, how your emotions and your behavior is designed, that a lot of people are waiting in the queue for hours for those 30 seconds of fun, which is in the mix of getting really sick, you know, and, and they go again next day. And he started to deal with that. And another thing which is striking him a lot is, is the space itself, like a, like a you know, how do all our behaviors and and notions, identity, and, and so on is changing when we're dealing about things not on the earth, where we really depend on gravity, but in this space. And main research that we are doing for Venice is the idea of planet of people. So it's a very super <laughs> speculative project how to colonize or not colonizing the outer space. So idea was that we should simply send bodies to the point of Langrange. We have four points like that around the earth where there is no sunlight and there is no gravity. And then those bodies which are sent there are frozen and they're levitating. And in some time, like after a billion years or whatever, those bodies start to attract each other because everybody, every mass has a gravity, its own gravity. And they start to attract each other and that's how they form the spatial body, which we should name a planet of people. So our Lithuanian Space Agency is working on our, so to say, national space program because countries like Lithuania and other smaller countries doesn't have a possibility to have a real space program because it's super expensive. So our space program is more artistic and speculative to send those poor bodies to, to the space, to the outer space, and to make a planet of ourselves instead, instead of colonizing or occupying other planets. So that's the project, basically. 
I so want to see the outcome of this project. <laughs> you should come. You should come to Venice. Definitely. I I hope to come. Yeah. So that it's going to be this. So twenty twenty one, the summer of twenty twenty one. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Okay. Great. Sounds like it sounds fascinating. I love this kind of stuff, though. I've I've had many friends that sort of do entire artistic projects about sort of like redefining the world, either historically or future kind of stuff. And and I absolutely love the sort of taking a, what a, what is a sort of yeah, not to sound bad, but like what's a simple idea and sort of turn it on its head and like just completely twist everything around. It's like, you know, traditionally a space agency is about investigating space, but you're turning that on its head and saying like, okay, we want to build our own space. <laughs> like, and, yeah. and we are investigating that as well. It's a very critical project, I have to say, as well, about the way the space is colonized by rich countries. Like, well, should it even be colonized is another question, but yeah. Yes, because there is a lot of related question, questions like, you know, bioengineering or space bioengineering and law, space law and so on, because... Is there space law? Yeah, because really? there are people who are researching, you know, about the rights in the outer space or, you know... Yeah, mining asteroids, I've seen exactly. that. Yeah. So, so there's a lot of questions related which touches that and which is striking for me and which is super interesting for me is that how all those questions could refer in our living space, in, in architecture in general, because architects seems to be the ones who are always building societies no? or building for the society, but not thinking about that, at least for now. Because we are still working on that very vertical way of, of expressing architecture, very vertical according to because of the gravity, of course. Like, you know, we are building shelters still. And whenever anything is brought in the outer space, it has very earthly shape. Well, I mean, it's interesting because like I've done studies of stuff like the difference between uh, the design of a home in let's say Spain versus Japan versus Finland versus America. And then even within America that varies as well. So like the nature of like how a culture, well, the question I guess would be like, does the culture define how the houses and the homes are structured or does that way the homes are structured define the culture? Mm. You know, cause like Spanish culture is very much like the, the courtyard and everybody congregates in the courtyard. Whereas like, uh, Japanese is sort of the, the walkway around the outside kind of thing. So it's sort of more out with nature. And then, of course, America is just, you know, big boxes just to house us, whatever. <laughs> like no yeah, fault yeah, to it whatsoever. It's, it's not only the climate. It's also a very cultural thing. The way you shape your around surroundings. And, 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 you know, like I have more experience of living in Italy and Italy is, is all about the street light or life. It's, it's all about the piazza. As such, it's very European cultural thing to have a piazza. I mean, it's, it's where democracy starts, actually, you know, because you gather together and you make decisions, you discuss, and so on and so forth. So all those relations are really, yeah, interesting. Well, it's also, I noticed coming from in America where I grew up, it is very much the home is the primary place. So you, you get bigger homes and smaller public places. Whereas in Europe, it's smaller homes, larger public places kind of thing. So like it's a very interesting shift in that dynamic. Rather opposite, yeah. 
I know. I think Europe does it better, though. So you know, whatever. <laughs> but even even you know, if you think about Europe itself, you can find uh, huge differences between I don't know Scandinavia and Italy, or you know Baltic countries as well, uh, because of climate, because of the price, and because of the democracy as well, because of all those ideas of sharing and so on. Like in Scandinavia, still they are not gathering that much outside but they have very small living spaces and huge public space. Like when you think about Norway, like land doesn't belong to the owner. It's everywhere, state land and, and, and so on. And you can park and, and have a I don't know, camp anywhere you want. You can stop in, in, in person's garden at some point. So, and I think that's also related to the mentality and, and to, it's very cultural think hmm. okay speaking of cultural things one other job that you had you had it on your resume says cultural attache in italy please define what does that mean it sounds incredibly prestigious <laughs> that's why i did it <laughs> and it is actually incredibly prestigious when you go there you realize how prestigious it is and that's also advantage if i can say so of living in a small country because everything is possible there how do you even become a culture i mean i cannot imagine <laughs> that they put something on like zip recruiter or some sort of like online <laughs> job posting saying like hey we're looking for a cultural attache like how does that job even come available because cultural attache is a culture diplomatic positions and in lithuania we have 13 cultural attaches which are working with a culture policy in other countries, mostly. In my case, it was, I was invited to take part in the competition. And since me, I guess, from the next one, they started a real simple open competition so anyone can apply who is able, you know, who is reaching certain, how to say, qualities or whatever. And Lithuanian, I assume. Because you have to represent the Lithuanian country, definitely. You still have to speak the language and have the citizenship, I, I suppose. Because otherwise, I mean, it's still a very bureaucratic position. So it <laughs> would be impossible, I guess, uh, to do it in another way. But uh, for me, it was also another, you know, another chapter of unexpected challenge in my life. Because I realized how prestigious it is only when I went there. Because when I went to Italy, and it's a super, super conservative bureaucratic system in Italy, even even more than our country, because we are young as a country still. And when you realize how difficult it would be to become part of that game, if you were Italian, for instance, and I was super young, young lady with two kids and so on, and when I went there, everybody was really shocked about how did I came there? And, and Wait a so minute, on. it was just it was just five years ago. It was yeah, five years ago or so. Okay, yeah, so super super young for for a, a an for Italian for attaché and for Italy, okay. it was incredibly. I mean, I was a baby for them, and yeah, and having in mind that you know I'm a woman and so on because over there it's I mean, and on that certain age you concentrate on the family. It's a country like that. So at some point, yeah, it, it was very prestigious, <laughs> if you name it like that. 
but I went there just because I had agenda. I had I had an idea what we should do with Italy because you know at some point it's prestigious job and so on. But on another hand, having in mind how low budget you have and how less of the you know international culture policies in general you can you can do especially when you come from such a small country with such a short history in culture to the country which has everything you know and they are not interested at all you know in 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 anything like that so i i went there because i had some ideas which we didn't didn't turn out to be maybe so so true but it was very interesting and and super good experience you know to to make things happen at some point when you are alone over there. Actually, you're doing everything yourself. Okay, help me out. I've never personally met a cultural attache from anywhere. So mm. what what is what is the job of a cultural attache? That's that's also a very good question because I realized that as well when I started that job is that, you know, this is kind of the bubble like you know, when people are dealing with some stuff, cultural representation and so on, and they're inviting each other to their own events and it's rather rather diplomatic stuff. And because I came not from the position of bureaucratic level, I was never working in the ministry before. For me, it was shocking to understand, you know, but come on, there is like a parallel world because I was going for real to, to the exhibitions and, and where artists are gathering together, you know, and then suddenly they realize, but you know, we didn't met a cultural attaché for a while, what you're doing here and so on. But So to explain what, what cultural attaché is doing. So it's a, a quasi-diplomatic position because you work in the embassy. It's a quasi-diplomatic because you are not real diplomat. I mean, because you don't work in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, you work in the Ministry of Culture. That's why you are quasi diplomat. Wait, yeah. so like, if you had artwork shipped, would be would it come in in like a diplomatic pouch? Did you have that power? <laughs> no, but on no. another hand, you know, it was really funny because I went to Italy with a second child who had half year. He was half years old, six months basically, and he had a diplomatic passport having that age so it was it was really funny you know that's exciting that's always that's fun. super Did, exciting like like could you get like speeding tickets and get it written off because you were a diplomat kind of thing <laughs> i mean in some countries it works but yeah in, in western europe i mean no it's no, okay you don't okay. even try because why well, I, I'm in. I've, I grew up in Washington D.C., so I knew lots of diplomats growing up. So, and they could like park their cars anywhere and get parking tickets. And because they're diplomats, they just didn't have to pay it and didn't have any ramifications for it. And that's the worst part of that, actually, because after that, you treat everybody who is coming from that field in a certain way that you know they have no idea about the real life. They are going anywhere they want. They have all those exclusions and, and so on. So that's that's the worst part of it, actually. But on another hand, yeah, you work in the embassy, but you work for the Ministry of Culture, and your role is to find ways to represent Lithuanian culture in Italy, in my case. 
it means that yeah you can you have a small budget you can do some events and so on which is regular way of doing like you know i don't know exhibition which is done not for sake of exhibition but mostly to invite other diplomats and raise a glass of wine and so on you can work on that direction basically there's quite a lot of things like that because there are also networks of, of all other culture institutes and so on, which work. And Rome is the city which has an old tradition of all those institutes of research, culture, and so on and so forth, historical ones, and a lot of material to, to do research, also residencies and whatever. Or you can really find a way to make Italian institutions and Lithuanian institutions to collaborate and to make things happen. So I took the role of making things happen and it was a lot of fun for four years, actually. Is it an appointed position? It's a four-year position, or did you choose it's to leave? It's a three-year position, which can be extended for a year more. And I was lucky one to, to have one more year to finish some things which I started, which actually were beyond any of my imagination at the starting point. Oh, yeah. I've been to many of those kinds of events, These those like cultural um exchange programs and things like this and i mean i like them it's great that they happen but it, it's really hard to make them actually like something transcend just the purely sort of governmental bureaucratic -y kind of thing like to really make it something that almost sort of yeah i mean i guess the easiest way is transcends it like it's it you don't even notice that it's a, a an, an exchange thing because it's such a impressive quality of whatever that's really hard to do i really think that sometimes the problem is that you know artists must go first in any case and our role is to support them not to invite them to illustrate our ideas at some point and very usually when it comes from a different direction it's thought of that you know okay what could be the occasion to invite you know, some people and give a nice speech or to remind about ourselves. Let's do a concert because it's nice in the evening and so on. It's good if it's a good quality concert, you know, which usually is and it's great and so on. But on another hand, when you understand that it doesn't relate to the real public, it doesn't relate to the culture field itself, it, it looks like a parallel world, really. And that's a big problem. Well, to a certain extent, it's them just sort of patting themselves on the back saying like, oh, we support cultural things. But See? that's true. But that's so true. You, you can't imagine how much of the effort circulates there. And on another hand, how many artists are who are working in that field, you know, to, but, but I find similar ways of behavior also in, in general culture field, because now culture is really treated as part of entertainment. No, so that's that's almost the same. A lot of artists are working in the ent entertainment field. A lot of artists are working in commercial field and so on because they have to live somehow and, and there is something they know how to do and, and they educated for that, they learned for that and so on. And they have a right to do so, I think. But somehow I really believe that those things shouldn't be that much separated, you know, 
Well, I mean, and to a certain extent, a lot of people do, or a lot of artists participate in those kinds of cross-cultural experiences because it often looks good on the resume and, again, helps you connect to a broader, more expansive network, basically. Like, it is very beneficial oftentimes in that way. You know, it looks good on the CV and you meet some new potential donors, supporters, whatever kind of thing. But there's always also a lot of artists who are very critical about that, you know, and you have to convince them sometimes that you're not kind of the diplomat who is going, you know, with the diplomatic number plate anywhere and doing whatever because everything is allowed and, and so on. So so that's also very interesting research, you know, how do we represent ourselves? Because to find a way to represent yourself in very general way you have first of all to understand who you are and what you're looking for and i think it was a very good time for me to go for that job because we are still very young country and to define you know what is our role what do we want to speak to or how do we want to speak to the wider public and so on is still very active i mean we are still in that discussion it's not developed yet. So you, you tell Lithuania and the rest of the of the you know world is telling, oh, this. Now of course it's a Sun and Sea project or other, you know, famous Lithuanian artistic projects and so on. But and I always like to emphasize when when I have a possibility to speak with I don't know, politicians or decision makers that you know, projects like Sun and Sea or other, you know, Venice Biennial, Golden Lion winner and so on didn't happen because of political decisions or because of our chosen direction and so on. It happened because we have strong artists and we have to understand why do we have those, what made it so special and also to understand how to support them. And that's it. I'm a huge advocate of general supporting type things like government supports private donors patrons whatever any kind of thing to help artists so that they can just do what they want to do instead of making it so that they have to tailor what they do to somebody else's criteria or interests it's a very difficult balancing act to do that seems like it's more difficult uh, these days, like, like, uh, you know, I think back to 50 years ago, 75 years ago, artists to a certain extent, like they were, if they put in a thing saying like, this is what I want to do. People said, okay, we like what you do. We support you period. And they didn't say we support you, but only if you work on these topics or yeah, yeah. only in this medium or only, they just said, we love what you do done. Whereas we believe now, that you're talented. Yeah. Correct. Yeah. But now there's all these additional aspects that are incorporated but into now like, it's also very difficult to define a quality because it's not based on <laughs> on your how to say professionalism usually well but in the old days it was based on it like the the patrons and the curators and the galleries were the arbiters of good taste kind of thing that basically said these people are worth supporting and then they got support mm. whereas these days it's very democratized in a way that we're, it's kind of difficult sometimes to figure out what is quality now. That's a, that's a good question. That's part of the game of the, all that networking and, and, and circulating, you know, in, in those networks and so on, because it's really, I mean, because we don't have any more 
uh, how to measure the quality. You know? But on another hand, I also understood that you know in some countries there is a strong tradition of mesonetism and so on. In other countries, like like we do, like in Lithuania, we have rather strong state support, which is supporting artists and so on. But I really start to think that architecture, the art is not something to support, it's something to invest to. Because we should think about the role of the artist in society, first of all, not only to entertain, not only to make our lives a little bit nicer, a little bit more beautiful, you know, some works a little bit more expensive or some, something like that, but to raise questions which are difficult questions or to think outside of the box even if it's so banal expression. And it's a very tough question nowadays, but I think it could be progressive because, you know, in those times when we have a lot of artificial intelligence and a lot of simple jobs or works to be done in, in a simple way, like, you know, robots and whatever it is, we should have more time to think about and, and to construct and I really feel that artist's role is to think about that future, to imagine, you know, to, to use another tools that the rest of the society is using. I have the greatest proposal for you. Okay, for the future, for your grant residencies that you say you spend so much time on and they spend so much time on, you could have a, an AI that's been created that can look through the applications and the AI will decide which are the most appropriate ones for you? I think I think that we could be the first. I'm I'm not sure if, if it doesn't happen in in Japan, for instance. But it could be because you know when you read, for example, 500 applications, you start to understand the keywords, fashionable keywords, and at least ten of the keywords of the year you always have, and it's mentioned in 90 percent of the applications, and if you take the pictures of the exhibitions that artists are showing you or sending you with their portfolios and so on. And if you could do a, a, a wallpaper of, out of these, you could barely recognize that these are different exhibitions at some point. I really see it's also rather problematic because we are all living in that global world, you know, and and to find something which is unique and, and interesting, and it's not that easy. That's fascinating. So like, there's a, there is this, well, to a certain extent, like I feel like when it comes to like, so let's go to just your residency program. So like when it comes to a residency program, like by the criteria that the way it's written, the application and, and the, the scope of it. So like, you know, is it a two week residency or a six months residency kind of thing? It attracts certain styles of artists kind of thing. Like, you know, somebody who does, I'm trying to think like, stone sculpture is not going to be able to apply because they're not going to be able to get stone there do their so they're just not going to have the facilities for whatever it is so like simply by the nature of the facilities the timeline the location the like it, it automatically sort of like whittles down a lot of potential artists so you end up with a pretty narrow uh, style mediums scale of of artists that could even apply at some point, yeah, yeah. And it's astonishing to find out how many of the artists there are then, or the ones who are looking to do a research or whatever. And 
on another hand, it's so great that they are interested to come, you know, and to dedicate their time because I think that time is one of the most valuable resources. So we are really happy and, and, and really glad, you know, to receive those artists, to have them and, and to have time with them. So that's that's great. That's part of the support system. I really believe so. I love the state sponsorship across Europe for all the, all the arts. It's amazing. I mean, coming from America, mm. it's incredibly envious how much all the governments, well, I don't know about all, but the majority of the governments in Europe are incredibly supportive of the arts in comparison to America. We always do complain but about you know how unpaid we are and so on. But on another hand, when you compare with other countries, really. But on another hand, I don't really... No, but I think or my impression is that to be an artist in states, it's something really, you know, to be proud of or something which sounds like, like, wow, because here, if you tell the others, like in the public transport that you are the artist, they will think that, okay, come on. <laughs> yeah, you're crazy. <laughs> Don't yeah. waste our money. In <laughs> uh, uh, America, America is very different. I mean, I, I was talking uh, on the podcast a while ago with a lady from Finland, and she was complaining. She said, "Yeah, my my government only pays for my studio and my art supplies." Exactly. And I'm like, only like, and when I you think how that much support. it costs in Finland, <laughs> it would be like, like, "Wow, give me that money!" <gasps> I know. I'm like, only your studio i like I, I didn't even have a studio until i was like 42 years old i was always working out of my home like the, to have a independent studio paid for by the government and your art supplies and she's like yeah that's all they pay for i'm like that's insane like we would love that can i just give you my passport i'll be i'll be finished if you'll <laughs> just pay for that stuff like, but that's exactly you know we are we are treating things very differently just because of the context. And uh, yeah, we complain a lot as well about our selection system of projects, artists, and so on. But when I have experience in Italy, for instance, the country which is, you know, it has most of the UNESCO culture heritage. It has most of the, of the peculiar stuff and it's super rich in culture. But the artists are so poor there. I mean, it's it's so impossible to do anything there except of super good education in 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 arts in in arts history and so on. I mean, you get crazy because of the information that they have and and because of the quality of the of the education that you can get there. So when you think about that and when you compare things, you think that I mean, we have exactly opposite situation <laughs> and uh, yeah it's it's very good sometimes to to have a possibility to go out of your bubble you know and, and to have another experience so then you come back and and you see that in a slightly different light oh i i mean i was raised in the united states and then i actually went to the middle east and i taught there for about six years and now i'm in europe so like i have a very different cultural understanding of like for years, like when I was a kid in the United States, we were always looking to Europe and we're like, how are they able to do these amazing 
conceptual works, like these grand conceptual things that like literally then turned around and inspired us so dramatically because we couldn't afford to do it because, you know, we're, our capitalistic society makes it so it's all about selling and blah 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 and it took me until i finally lived there to go oh i understand how they can like make these incredibly deep conceptual things because there's there's great support whether it's from government or private institutions or whatever it is like there's this amazing financial support so that like the production of art in europe is for the sake of the art not for the art market. I agree with you. And that's a huge difference. It's a luxury and I, system. Oh, and I love living in Europe because of it. <laughs> <laughs> I agree with you. I really agree with you. And I think that's something that we should appreciate. Indeed. All right. Last little topic that actually on your CV, and we, we talked a little bit about this before in, your, in, your, in our emails, was that you do exhibition architecture. I was used to do that, yeah. What is that? Yeah. What the hell is yeah. that? <laughs> well, I was just going to be polite. Could you please elaborate on that a little bit? <laughs> well, I mean, if it if it's what I think it is, which, and again, this is a vernacular difference thing. Like, to me, I think it's like exhibition design and exhibition construction, kind of like, so working with the flow of the traffic, the textures, the light quality, the colors of the walls, like, you know, sort of all the stuff to, to create a uh, an engaging uh, interaction for the public when seeing an exhibition. Is, is that more or less what I'm doing? Yeah, it's, it's more or less. I'm not I'm not doing this anymore except some very small exceptions but that was my turn to to the arts field from architecture because I started to to deal with artists and it was very interesting for me to see how things are done there so I started to construct stuff and I realized that yeah I mentioned this before the role of the translator you know if the artist has an idea artistic idea it has to be translated somehow to the spatial form. And you always work under circumstances, under the space that you are given or the atmosphere that you're given, and you have to transform that. And usually artists, they doesn't have enough tools, you know, to do that. So they need some kind of a help of an architect who can shape the installation, for instance. So I started working with the artist and then I became like regular exhibition designer, exhibition architect. I started to work with group exhibitions and so on to build the concept. And I was really into that for a few years because I realized that it's much better than pure architecture because it, it is much quicker process. And the impact for the environment is much, much smaller and the impact for the public is much, much higher. And it was very interesting to see, you know, how the visitor is coming, how he or she is turning, or how they recognize some artworks, and how attention to one or another work can be can be really focused, and so on. So, so it's yeah. At one hand, it's rather technical work to do. On another hand, it's rather can be rather artistic or scientific, or can be really atmospheric thing like. To, to build the atmosphere, to create the atmosphere. 
Okay, just to be clear, I'm all about this stuff. Like, I read the psychology of like how they design uh, stores and like to to create the right flow and how to attract people to certain areas through colors and quality of light and all this kind of stuff, as well as museum exhibitions. Like, so give me some like insight that you experienced over it. So, like, I have like obsessive little things like wall colors. The white cube, I feel like, is a little bit passe at this point. So, is it a bit more of a? Is it what's the what's the thing that you found is sort of the best color to create exhibitions? Like, I'm leaning more towards like neutral grays more than pure whites kind of things. Mm-hmm. Like, so what kind mm-hmm. of experience have you had with that? It it really depends on what you want to say, but at some point, yeah, really, white cube is focusing on the object. But if you want to immerse the visitor, I was going to say, but in a, but in a very sterile way. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, if yeah. you want to photograph it, or if you want to focus, if you want to look at the detail, white cube is is perfect with a with a strong light and so on. But if you want to immerse, like to make the visitor to lose the sense of the space, black one is always you know giving that notion of theatrical space of a black box instead of a white cube. And that's also a tool usually, especially when you are not pretty sure about composition and so on. Some black walls and black or gray, dark gray carpet or something like that is is really focusing or or framing the work. Another thing is, yeah. Well, no, I mean, like, do you go even, like, you even mentioned carpeting. Like, do you even go into the whole constructive nature of, like, concrete floors versus wood floors versus carpeting? Like, the the physical, this, the, like, the physical experience of walking through a space and how the different sounds of walking can I affect I think that's it? super important. Not so many artists or not so many institutions pay attention to that. But that's but that's super important to to, to notion and, and and to invest at least you know a little bit of attention because no I don't know um, visitor will always go towards the light and as strong light as it is is always attracting all the animals humans including if you have a possibility to turn to the right you will always turn to the right not to the left and and a lot of things like like behavior stuff. But then also it goes, I mean, if you want to create atmosphere and it's a lot of echoes there, it doesn't work simply. So the the paths, the floors, the material stuff is super important. Now there's quite a lot of people who are doing research about that material behavior because our environment is really surrounded by fake materials. A lot of, you know, two millimeters, which can look like bronze or, I don't know, stone or whatever. And natural materials has different acoustic or other features. So to have a possibility, you know, to sense, to sense it, and and I really think that you know, somehow coming to the exhibition. That's why I was astonished, and that's why I'm really interested in in, in working in that field. Is that you know, to come to the exhibition is part of the somehow it's a celebration. You know, it's a special occasion for you to enter to some other space. And if you want to tell something which is possible to tell by book, you should publish a book. If you can do a movie, you should do a movie. But if you want someone to come to the space, the space has to be specific and it has to be bodily experience, not only only visual experience. 
because you have a path, you have, you know, all the things that you experience with all of your body. I've always wanted to do an exhibition where I actually create like a custom smell. So that like when you enter the space that there's a, a an olfactory sort of like experience that mm -hmm. you then associate with it. Because a lot of my life experiences, I have, you know, scents that have sort of become triggers for memories kind of thing. So like doing that and then like having offering some food that so they can taste something while they're looking at the art, like the, because again like the you know the human experience is often more than just one sense and so like the the idea of sort of increasing all these different things which goes back to the subtlety of wood floors versus concrete floors versus carpeting like just the the nature of how you're walking on something and the sounds that you're creating when you're walking through a space will affect your experience with the work definitely and it and it always has influence we just don't recognize that often yeah, my mom's an interior decorator, so like I'm all about this stuff. Hmm. Great, congrats! <laughs> so that's your roots. Well, my my father's a painter and a priest, hmm. and my mother's an interior decorator. So I got a little bit of a lot of a lot of stuff going on there. Got a little theatrical from the ministry. <laughs> got a little bit of painterly quality and artistic stuff, and then my mother, of course, adds on to the, the whole experiential kind of stuff. So yeah, I got a lot of that. That's how you turn combine all that into artists. My father was even a member of the, the American Ar Institute of Architects. So mm, like I actually mm, have a little mm. bit of knowledge about architecture as well. So the um, last little bit, it would be any advice for people for the future of you know possibly wanting to be in your career or any just being in the arts career in general. Like <laughs> Specific, specific advice rather than just like keep working like everybody says that crap no, so, everybody so, so. Is, is, is keeping working but i really you know i'm one of those old-fashioned people who think that if you're doing something that you really like sooner or later you will live out of it you no know? hmm. because at some point you know when you start to be very pragmatic i think that there is no way back i mean when you start to work with the market and you think that okay i will work a little bit for that and then i will come back you know i will buy my villa and then i will come back to the arts field no i think that you know all supposed to come from what what is your interest and i think that if you really find what is striking you that's the best way because sometimes especially artists they are struggling you know because i want to go to that field but it has all that complication and so on and suddenly you realize that in a real life he's really interested into the i don't know cars or into the rockets or into the sport but if you manage to turn that interest into your artistic field <laughs> i really believe that it could be something you know so my only advice is, you know, to, to find what is really attracting you and yeah, and to keep on going, as you said, something really generic. Because I, I don't believe in planned careers. Of course, if I would believe I would really do something for more than three years. My my longest job was cultural attaché, which took me for four years. But but at some point, I, I become bored, you know, because when you understand how things are going, it's not interesting to repeat yourself. Yeah, I I had a career, but unfortunately, the career 
sort of undid itself. Like I was going to be a professor and I was going to teach for my entire life and that was going to be my life. But the, the entire academic institutional structure has sort of fallen apart since yeah. I graduated, you know, cause I graduated from school 20 years ago. So 20 years ago, there were still good teaching jobs that paid well and you could have that for your entire career. But uh, unfortunately that doesn't exist anymore. So I'm having to get creative you know, like that, that's, I think that's part of our, our generation and our time that, that, you know, f you know, being, creative with how to make it so that you're happy with your job uh, and, and how you can take your your interests and make it into something you enjoy as a job is is very contemporary because like my so. you know my parents didn't think like that they just got a job that paid the bills there <laughs> mm -hmm. I believe that you know we we are living in in the period of collapse but on the same time on the luxury time when you can do whatever. And wherever yep. you know, international travel is much easier to do than it ever was. Anything is, is much easier, but I really think that it's very important not to forget about the quality at some point, because I really still believe in professionalism, in pure professionalism, that if you are doing something for a million times, it's much better than to try a million different things, you know, and 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 the professionalism is something that we are losing at some point as you told as well like you know to be a professor and so on is something that now is is falling but but how future generations are going to live then are we going to learn everything from youtube okay it might be but but at some point you know when you meet someone who is really high level intellectual and so on, it is much, much higher impression and power and so on than anything else that can impress you. Absolutely. I'm not a fan. I'm, I'm a fan of YouTube for fundamental things. Like if I need to do my plumbing or, or change the oil on my car, YouTube is amazing for that. But when it comes to intellectual pursuits and sort of expertise, I'm not going to YouTube, but that's, mm. I'm, I'm older that way. So mm. I hope that our education system does not go to YouTube, but, you know, I, but I'm an <laughs> academic. I really, really hope that. Well, it's interesting times. So indeed. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It was interesting conversation. And it was fun. Yeah, definitely. Mm -hmm.